don't scorn happiness. It is as fashionable to scorn happiness as it is dumb. It is popular to try to seem wise because one understands that happiness is not that important after all. And voila, you can mirror yourself in Kierkegaard, Heidegger or Viktor Frankl saying that meaning is more important. And for sure, for the individual person faced with aging, sickness or concentration camps, that was Frankl, this can make sense, which is probably why most people begin to say such things after about age 50. But at societal level of analysis, the scorn for happiness is profoundly misplaced. Do you think happiness is important? Now look in the now look the chronical the chronically depressed person in our eyes. We are not talking about the cute kind of depressed of cultural creative here, like the Norwegian author Carl Ulver Knausgaard, but people who really can't get up in the morning and get abandoned by their own families as a result. And say that again. Look the unhappy, insecure kid who desperately looked for, for comfort in a stranger on the web and just got raped by someone who is also miserable and say it again. Or how about the screaming piglet who just literally got his testicles ripped off without anesthetics. Look him in the eye and tell him his happiness is unimportant that he should try to find meaning in it. Not so tough, huh? Kind of grabs that solemn, wise style you got, you had going there for a moment. Happiness and misery, bliss and suffering, these are, to a large extent, continuous with one another. If you are committed to preventing and relieving the suffering of others, you are also committed to supporting their happiness. To say something in defense of the deriders of happiness, it's not usually that they don't care about others or that they suffer from philosophical defeatism due to a kind of Stockholm syndrome, that you begin to excuse unhappiness because you yourself are unhappy. That your mind is taken hostage, as it were. Their mistake lies primarily in the failure to make the analytical distinction between unsustainable, hysterical happiness on the one hand and authentic, sustainable happiness on the other. Authentic happiness includes hedonism, pleasure, fun, and eudaimonia, meaning contentment as well as the productive and responsive acceptance of pain and sorrow. These critics also fail to see the social implications of how happy people are more, of how happy people are more productive in profound and complex ways. The critics conflate all talk of human happiness with the cheap commercial self-help books and unbridled individualism individualism, uh, one big hot summer party on a pizza. They think that striving for happiness 
implies what I later in this book call the denial of the denial of tragedy. tragedy. Sometimes they also mistake sincere commitment to the happiness of others for the worship of the happy slash successful person and a corresponding disdain for the unhappy slash unsuccessful person, which is, of course, not what we are talking about here. Striving for happiness of our fellow citizen is perfectly compatible with ascribing equal ethical value to the fortunate and grief-stricken alike. On another note, some of the better informed critics point out that happiness is a rather vague societal goal, because people don't seem to agree about what makes them happy. But the argument doesn't hold up. First of all, it is perfectly possible to describe with some consistency what happiness feels like. Some of its psychopsychological correlates and so on. Even if recent research with effective psychologist Lisa Feldman Barrett at its, at its forefront has revealed that there appears to be no single no neurological or physiological fingerprint of different emotions. It is at least possible to broadly discern positive inner states from negative ones. Even if the issue is an enormously difficult one, happiness constitutes a set of describable, describable, discernible phenomena, regardless how it is caused. And yes, we can know a lot about what causes happiness. Just not by naively asking people, what a stupid method is that, but through experimental psychology, ethology, studies of animal behavior, psychophysiology, and so on. Secondly, and more importantly, People are rather consistent in their ideas about what makes them unhappy, social degradation, harm to the body, etc. Which again underscores that we can prevent misery in another in order to create happiness and vice versa. People find many reasons to be against happiness. Such criticism of happiness is understandable, but ultimately mistaken and inexcusable. It lands you to untenable posi positions. The fact that happiness isn't everything, that it isn't the only worthy personal and societal goal, doesn't mean that it is nothing and no worthy goal. Of course, if you, are, if you always try to make everything about happiness only, you get in uh, philosophical trouble and people can start asking you those dull questions like to ask beginner level utilitarians, which means people who want to maximize the happiness in the world. What if you, what if you had a poisonous happiness pill? Pinchy, pinchy, pinchy. But, and there is the reply, 
if you try to act in society without any concern that all about the happiness and suffering of others, you get in much worse trouble. That's the point here. I say it again. The fact that happiness isn't everything doesn't make it into nothing. Happiness still matters very much if you want to understand the problems of society. Growing host for of research from the field of positive psychology, psychology and other fields, including strands of medicine and epigenetics, show that happiness is good for you. A banal research finding in a way. I'm not going to reference it here. So yes, we should make people happy. And it is simply perverse to suggest otherwise. Don't worry. Spirituality and existential development really do tower far beyond emotions of happiness. And yes, they are awesome and significant. And no, happiness alone does not exhaust the meaning of life and the universe, as we shall discuss later. We just need to get some people off their high spiritual and existential horses so that we can get on with the argument without being stuck at point zero due to tiresomely pretentious attempts and uh, profundity. And then we need to set the horses free while we're at it. Their backs aren't made for carrying other animals, you know. Horses are made for roaming on the vast plains under open, open skies. The fabric of hurt and bliss. Let's return to the main argument. People are hurting as hell. It matters. We should do something to make them happier if we can. So where were we? Let us clarify the diagnosis of late modern society. The central future of our predicament. There is a shared complex fabric of psychological hurt and bliss that determines our common lives and futures. Our wounds and insufficient developments do not stray with ourselves. They transmit to other people, often in unexpected and indirect ways. The suffering and stunted development of our citizens are not individual concerns, but matters of utmost importance to society as a whole. They are deeply political, ecological and economic matters. The stunted development caused by emotional suffering affects the individual quality of life as well as the basic societal concerns such as security, public health and the stability of our institutions. As it has been shown in large influential studies that happiness tends to transmit through networks, a happy friend with a mile tends with a mile within a mile tends to make you happier, a neighbor even more. Siblings or spouses work too, but to a lesser degree. But happiness and pain are social uh, in an even more tangible and intimate way. Hurt, shame and fear make us become mean, controlling and bosses, mean, controlling bosses, envious friends, lousy parents, bad teachers, thoughtless voters, uncritical consumers and ungrateful neighbors.
we shift the blame, as immature people do, and believe that the ills of the world are due to people who we are not, who are not like ourselves, we become poor citizens incapable of meaningful dialogue, incapable of universal love and forgiveness. We are judgmental, short-sighted and self-righteous, raging at the moral degenerates and hypocrites. And we fail to show common courtesy and respect to those we disagree with, not least in politics. We fail to take responsibility to act productively in the interest of ourselves and others. And in our attempts at a better life, we are often severely limited or thwarted by the immature and socially inept behavior of ourselves and others. There's a great fabric of relations, behaviors and emotions reverberating with human and animal bliss and suffering, a web of intimate and formal relations, both direct and indirect. Nasty whirlwind, whirlwinds of feedback cycles blow through this great multidimensional web, pulsating with hurt and degradation. My lacking human development blocks your possible human development. My lack of understanding of you, your needs and perspective hurts you in a million subtle ways. I become a bad lover, a bad colleague, a bad fellow citizen and human being. We are interconnected. You cannot get away from my hurt and wounds. They will follow you all, all of your life. I will be your daughter's abusive boyfriend, your belligerent neighbor from hell. And you will never grow wings because there will be always because there will always be mean bosses, misunderstanding families and envious friends. And you will tell yourself that that is how life must be. But this is not how life has to be. Once you begin to be able to see the social psychological fabric of everyday life, it becomes more increasingly apparent that the fabric is relatively easy to change, to develop. Metamodern politics aim, aims to make anyone, everyone secure at the deepest psychological level so that we can live authentically, a byproduct of which is a sense of meaning in life and lasting happiness, a byproduct of which is kindness and an increased ability to cooperate with others, a byproduct of which is deeper freedom and better concrete results in the lives of everyone, a byproduct of which is society less likely to collapse into a heap of atrocities. Of course, it should be noted that the fabric works in complex and often contradictory ways. One form of happiness can give birth to another form of misery and vice versa. The happiness of one person can be the downfall of another. But there are regularities to these patterns and we can make the patterns work for a collective sustainable happiness. Yes, for love. We desperately need a deeper kind of welfare beyond the confines of material welfare and medical security. A listening society where every person is seen and heard 
rather than made invisible and put under surveillance. How can this be achieved? Taking up the struggle. The answer is to be found in what we today know so much about the human mind, the brain and the human being in her totality. Her psychopsychology, her behavioral responses and patterns, including economic behaviors, her emotions, her relationships, how to make her happy, how to decrease the likelihood of psychiatric disorder, disorders, how to prevent family tragedies, how to support her in, her in the developmental stages of her childhood, adolescence and adulthood, how to support and to some extent increase her intelligence and creativity, how to help her to heal after hurt and loss, how to support her tendencies for universal, universalistic values, how to support her towards developing more complex thinking, even how to support her the, the acquisition of existential and spiritual insights that make death, pain and life's disappointments more to tolerable and manageable. And this knowledge is growing by Williams every day. There is, there is increasing evidence that many different factors work together in to help a human being flourish or to let her fall apart. In medicine, this insight is called the biopsycho-ecological paradigm. In psycholo psychology, it is sim similarly is it <coughs> in psychology, it is similarly called the biopsychosocial model. In politics and welfare policy, we can call it the listening society, which is the deeper form of welfare metamodern activists strive to achieve. Political metamodernism is the rebellious act of taking this vast knowledge into our hands and to boldly shape it into usable politics, into wonderful but dangerous social technologies that can be used to fundamentally improve the lives of a majority of citizens. This is to be achieved within the time frame of a few generations. We are not talking about a dramatic revolution from one day to another, or an attempt to set things straight once and for all, or the sudden waking up of everyone. Nor are we talking about a utopia in any naive sense. We are talking about painstaking slow reforms that nevertheless can be expected to have substantial effects on the quality of life of our fellow citizens over a longer period and on average. We take the most useful of the scientific knowledge into our hands and begin the long path of using a multiplicity of slow, open, transparent democratic processes with the goal of reshaping all parts of society, schools, the workplace, higher education, the market, healthcare, even personal relationships, sex lives, gender relations, worldviews, and inner selves of the citizen. We are speaking about conscious and deliberate social, psychological and cultural development.
as our power over nature grows and as the social technologies allow us to deeper access into the human soul, the political metamodernist takes open, deliberate and and unapologetic responsibility for the psychological development of all citizens. It is my responsibility that they left home for the madness of the Syrian war. It is my responsibility that most people do not see the wrongs in how we let the farm animals suffer slavery, torture and mutilation. It is my responsibility that the integration of immigrants is working poorly, that so many young women suffer from anorexia, that so many people live their lives with a pervasive lack of meaning and never truly work to improve the world. I could have changed social reality, thereby changing the life of these fellow beautiful creatures on the God. It was me all along, it will always be. This is the commitment of the metamodern activist. The political philosopher Elizabeth Cripps has argued that the citizen cannot hide behind her individuality. In the face of the collective ethical dilemmas caused by by the actions of the many. One must act according to one's abilities to change the collective, given that one understands the mechanism that causes harm, and that one knows what actions can reasonably be taken. This moral obligation includes political activism. Whereas Cripps writes primarily about climate change, her ideas certainly apply to a wider context. The more you understand how society's ills are caused by the psychosocial environment, which is the interplay of people's inner lives and the arenas of everyday life, the more uh, obliged you are to change and develop these realities. Accepting the risks. Reaching deeper into the human soul an organism supporting its inherent capacities for development is dangerous business. It can easily lead to breaches of the private and personal sphere, the subtle but pervasive forms of oppression. But it is, as we shall see in the next book, a path that we have already traveled along at least since the 17th century, and it is becoming increasingly necessary given how our technology is evolving. Such a cultural development requires millions of scientific articles and careful democratic debates, trial and error, effective measurement, continuous feedback, and full transparency of information and decision-making. Building or cultivating the next and deeper layer of social welfare requires the ongoing posing of two questions. How can good conditions and prerequisites for human flourishing and thrivability be be brought about? And how can this be done in a manner that is open, democratic, non-manipulative, without creepy undercurrent of control? The metamodern political activist lives by both of these questions, day and night, body and soul. 
It is a full-time commitment because negligence in either of the two questions can and will be have terrible consequences. If we fail to answer and act upon the first question, it means that we are not using the best knowledge available to let people lead happy and productive lives. We are thus letting people walk walk lonely through life, letting children be bullied, exploited and harmed in so many other ways, letting the public debates continue to be dysfunctional, letting the destruction of our environment continue, letting the torture of billions of defenseless animals continue, letting people rot away during old age and die full of angst, confusion and regrets. Failing to answer the first question does not only mean that we are reproducing the inexcusable suffering prevalent in current society, it also means that we are making large global catastrophes much more likely, as insecure and afraid people with poorly working social institutions gain power over nanotech, AI and redesign of life itself. We are failing to evolve humanity to a a maturity matching her newly won powers over nature that that the information age, or rather the multidimensional crisis revolution, brings. If we fail to answer and act upon the second question, we are undermining freedom, democracy and human dignity. We are treating people like pawns and contributing to a system of increasing manipulation and surveillance, where power over deep psychological and personal issues fall into the hands of elites and bureaucracies. At the dawn of the modern age, Adam Smith, the father of economics, warned us about the man of system, who tries to arrange everything in accordance to his plans and ideas about the good society, but ends up creating unexpected consequences and misuses of political power. Quote, so, so enamored with the supposed beauty of his own ideal plan of, the gover- of government that he cannot suffer the smallest deviation from any part of it. Unquote. You may have heard of the term nudging, Sunstein's and Taylor's behavioral economic idea that people can be subtly nudged to making better choices by means of libertarian paternalism. A choice architect can arrange how food is presented in the school's lunch line, thereby improving public health by facilitating the making of better choices. There's nothing wrong with this line of reasoning and principle, but it begs the question about who such a choice architect should reasonably be. In Sunstein's and Taylor's discussion, the George George architect becomes eerily close to the man of the system. Uh, At the very least, people should get to vote in a direct democracy manner, but how or when 
we want to to nudge or not. Every day we must look deep into our own eyes in the mirror. Are we becoming this technocratic man of system? This is not only a contemplative question, but a political and analytical one. As you will see in the next book, the six new forms of politics suggested create checks and balances that work against the misuse of power, against the manipulation of insensitive social engineering. The development of society and our increasing knowledge force us to face and and to balance out the man of the system at the new and deeper levels. We have only begun to become acquainted with this man of the system and his grey eminence will show his face in in more subtle ways, even deep within ourselves. The two questions go together. You cannot have the first without the second. Neither question has one answer. They are both open-ended and they will continue to produce new conundrums, dilemmas and riddles as society evolves and new challenges arise. They both require ongoing questioning and answering. They are, to, to use that hackneyed term again, processes. Many people take pride in not even attempting to answer the first question because they thereby avoid having to answer the second one. A position I will later call the liberal innocent. From that position their hands are free to attack anyone who tries to make suggestions about how society may be different and better by labeling them control freaks arrogant or naive. These are the people who fail to to accept the risks and thereby make themselves complicit in the suffering of all who are mutilated under the unacceptable cruelty of our prevailing society. Higher freedom, freedom begets greater responsibility and we are free together or not at all. For the reader who does not accept the risks, who asks for freedom, but does not take the responsibility, I have nothing but the most severe model condemnation.